on. Cool, cool. Good morning and welcome to the 21st chapter of the Perthian Chronicles. I'm Ryan Morano, and today in this chapter we have, well, a soon-to-be leader of the arts industry. Winner of the 2013 Finley Award for Best Choreographer and recent graduate of the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts Performance Making Course, Jessica Russell is an actor, writer, director, divisor, choreographer, producer and many other things. Having started this year as a divisor and performer in Blueprint at the Blue Room Theatre, in recent months Jessica was also publicity and marketing for Arteries by Ancestry, publicity for Leica, a staged radio play, and is currently the producer for Unveiling Gay Sex for End Times, all at the Blue Room Theatre. Jess, welcome. Hello, thank you. 21st as well, that's my lucky number. <laughs> See, this is really, it's, it's sort of, the series is sort of now coming to an end. Okay. And I'll tell you why it is coming up at the end with the last question. And I'm glad that you sort of don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> no, so it's, it's, it's really... Ominous. You, you, you'll see. <laughs> you'll, you, you will see. But yeah, this is the 21st. Cool. And hopefully I'm going to make 26 chapters in total. So five more to go. Beautiful. So Jess, how has been your first year out of uni? Oh, crazy. <laughs> it's been a really interesting year. It's been a really busy year, which I'm really thankful for. And it's been meeting a lot of fantastic artists. It's been working with people from within the BPA course, from without the BPA course. Uh, and I've, I've gotten a lot of skills under my tool belt very quickly. I've uh, honed in on skills that I had sort of going into Whopper and that were finessed at Whopper even further. Mm. And it's been, it's been a really incredible year, if busy. Mm. <laughs> Segwaying, as you know, this is quite a very, as, as our dear listeners know, or whoever. Actually, did you know a lot of people in America listen to this? Podcast? Really? Yeah, for some good reason. Oh, I love it. So hello, New York. Hello, Florida. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, for some wonderful, weird, beautiful reason. And as everyone knows, this podcast is very uh, odd and, and colloquial. I've lost my train of thought um, as to why I... Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sidestepping and digressing a lot. That's all good. But speaking about this year, mm-hmm. and I found this year to be very daunting. Mm-hmm. I felt, personally for me, I felt I had, to, I had to do something. I had to prove something. I had to, you know... Come out of the gates, kind of yeah. running, yeah. And, and I feel like, yeah, that's a beautiful um, metaphor. I felt yeah. like I'm in like this imaginary race... And, and now I'm only starting to realise you're actually racing no one. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Like for me, because I went straight into doing the producing and marketing and, and I ended up doing six roles for the Book of Life, which was at the Studio Underground as part of the Blue Room Theatre Summer Nights and Renegade Production Company. I was on board with that before we'd even graduated. Mm. And as a result, whilst it's incredible and I feel really humbled, um... I've actually been on projects back to back since then. Mm. So for a year now, I've been consistent with work and I'm fortunate enough to say that I'm going to be consistent with work until early next year. But I did have a moment where I sort of went, I haven't been on holiday in four years. I haven't been like, I can't remember the last time I went on a trip that wasn't arts related. 
And so it's now, it's like trying to slow my legs down to stop from running and just go like, okay, projects take time. I don't have to be on multiple projects. I don't have to be stressed to feel like I'm doing something. One project at a time is a good idea. Yeah. Absolutely. So what have you picked up this year? A thing or something that you should, that we should be wary of? Oh, as in current theatre practices or... Um, I think the burning out thing is a big one. I think one thing that I'm really conscious of at the moment is there's a mentality in a lot of young artists that you need to be making work. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of making work for the sake of making work Mm -hmm. and not necessarily making work because we're passionate about an idea or we've actually sat with an idea long enough to say that theatre is maybe the best form for it. So for me personally, going back to that thing of like trying to slow my legs down, I want to take a a sort of a five-month stint next year in Europe uh, just to reconnect with reading like works of non-fiction, reading novels, traveling, and still wanting to be observing theatre companies and and doing workshops and things like that, but not necessarily with the outcome to be to produce a piece of work, having it about just sort of filling my well of creativity and actually finding an idea organically rather than especially during this kind of a time when it's fringe application season Mm. I think every young artist feels I need to have an application in in order to feel like I'm doing something and I had that realization myself that you know I I was putting in an application for an idea that I wasn't 100% sure if I had fully formalized in my head so I think that's something to be weary of in our current climate I think it's I think it's a wonderful testament to the the passion and the sort of tenacity of young theatre makers, but I also think it could result in a lot of really talented but completely burnt-out artists before they're even 30. Mm. I remember our mutual contact that I just met this year, um, Glenn Hayden. Oh, Glenn, yeah. Um, And it's wonderful, as we know, um, Glenn's in India, Mm. um, being basically Australia's cultural ambassador, bringing wonderful Australian works to India as we speak. Mm. But a wonderful thing, when I interviewed him and in his chapter, I think think he did brought this up. Well, I'm going to bring it up anyway. Mm. He did say, when Fringe World is on, yeah, he was saying the exact same, like when, I think... When Fringe World is on, you don't have to put on a show. Mm. I think it's. I think you do need to take some years to sit back and, and watch. Yeah. And remember everything. And I've, I've sort of, in a way, I've been fortunate in my year. I've had some time to do a little bit of workshops. Mm. I help it out a little bit and take a step back and to see what I really want to do. Yeah, definitely. I've gotten to be a part of some, you know, incredible workshops this year. One was. Um, with Strut Dance WA, I worked mm. with Maxine Doyle and Sarah Dowling from Punch Drunk. And I spent two weeks learning under them and their process. And that was so, so enriching. And also, like, incredibly out of my comfort zone. Because whilst I trained as a dancer many years ago, I'd completely lost that sort of sense. And then I also went over and did a masterclass with Danielle Mikic at Force Majeure. And reconnecting with her methods. And even going back to those basic building blocks was just a really timely reminder of just slow down, go back to your practice, go back to your craft and observe, watch, read. You don't have to be making all the time. Whilst on your various theatre projects, Mm -hmm. did you have any flashbacks from your studies? A few, yeah. Oh, I mean, 
Well, obviously, Blueprint began at WAPA with um, Sean Croft and Phoebe Sullivan and I's Tilt Piece, which was our graduating um, showcase for BPA. I'm just trying to think what other flashbacks I've had. I think a lot of, because I've spent the second part of the year doing a lot of admin work, I had a lot of moments going back to our unit in arts management. Yes, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and reflecting on um, ideas that she gave us or best ways to implement things. I'm also about to enter a lot of research into grant applications and things to make this Europe yeah. stint happen. So I'm going to be taking a lot from her yes. into those into those applications. Um, but I think, like, I, I recently did an interview with Real Time, and I said that throughout the year there are a lot of moments where I could feel my training kicking in almost subconsciously. Mm. I'd action certain things or I'd have certain instincts and then upon reflection I'd be like oh that's the class I got that from or that's the tutor I got that from uh, which was really kind of lovely to reflect on and see. Speaking about like uh, the Churchill Fellowship mm. I just only found that about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. It existed. I know it's incredible. It's such a thing and it's for us the Churchill Fellowship yeah. <laughs> for anyone out there listening it's for a this one's for Australians, so if you're an Australian who wants to go abroad, and it doesn't have to be art, it can be if you're fascinated about anything and want to study it, but not a tertiary study, you want to study it, you want to actually see like scientists make science mm -hmm. or, or, or what have you, yeah. you can apply and you can use, they'll give you money, lots of money, <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit of money, uh, to, to travel and, and see uh, masters at their craft, at their yeah. skill, at, at their work. So, in your opinion, mm -hmm. what quality should an artist aim for? Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think self-awareness is a really big skill as an artist. I think you need to have a really fine balancing act between being humble enough to take on constructive criticism and, and recognising flaws in your work, but you also have to be tenacious enough in your skills and your ideas to trust your gut and to sometimes stick your neck out. Again, in this interview with Real Time recently, I said during Blueprint, Phoebe Sullivan and I, as co-divisors, we had plenty of moments where we, we were on stage doing the show and we'd go, oh, it's so obvious. Oh, this is how we'd, we'd workshop this scene or this is how we'd cut the script or this chunk of text is clunky, this is how we'd edit it. But we couldn't have done that without putting it up in front of an audience because you get so in this little bubble of the world that it's not until you give that kind of bubble out to the audience that you yeah. can actually see its flaws. So there were definitely like a lot of learning curves. So I think, yeah, self-awareness and the ability to, you know, swallow a slice of humble pie is really important. I think curiosity, sort of, in, you have to have an insatiable curiosity because I think... Again, going back to this idea of making art for the sake of making art, art shouldn't come from that. Art should come from the world around us. You shouldn't just be curious about artistic practices and methods. You should be curious about, you know, what's happening in politics currently, what's happening in science currently. That's a field that I'm really interested in. I think the way that science and art can collide is fascinating. You, yeah, so this sort of insatiable curiosity as to the world around you, I think, makes for a really talented artist. And I think... I think an openness is really important. I think, you know, without 
going into the sort of tropes of an artist has to be confident, an artist has to be well organized or anything like that because I've seen artists of all calibers disorganized or not confident or not succeed I think (laughs) (laughs) I think um I think you need to be open to I think the world around you you need to be open to other artists you need to be open to other processes yeah I don't know I think yeah what what have I said so far self-awareness curiosity curiosity and openness I think those would be the big three and I think they come in many shapes and forms. I think those make for a really incredible artist because I think that allows an artist to be forever changing, forever renewing themselves and able to sustain themselves both as a person first and mm. as an artist second. Very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sustaining themselves yeah. before the, fac- or the, the, the potential of a, to be an artist, that sort of weird facade mm. that can, it could actually become a parasite in a weird Yeah, well, even in the sense of, you know, like I've had to continue working part-time this year to in order to pay my rent and things like that um, because freelance work, you know, often doesn't pay up front and things like that. And, you know, we're all kind of working our asses off essentially to to make things happen. But it's been a learning curve this year for me, realising that it's all well and good on a piece of paper to say I'll have the energy to go to rehearsals after a day at my desk job kind of thing but you know you have to recognize sometimes at your paid work you have really busy days and you have days where a lot of your mental capacity is kind of exhausted and you don't have anything creatively to give in the evenings and that's okay it's okay to want to come home after a day of work and and not do any artistic work you're allowed to be a human at the end of it yeah I've had that fear so much this year of not making anything Mm. But also I had this thought today in the car when I was driving. It's funny you should say because um, I'm also doing a little bit of teaching. There's a friend of mine who wants to audition for the acting course at WAPA. Gorgeous. And he wanted some help. So mm-hmm. I'm helping him out. And, and it's a wonderful opportunity to, do, to go back on this wonderful trip on memory lane. And it's been a wonderful, funny process. And I feel like our training... Well, I, the, the course is great. Look mm-hmm. it up, people. Google <laughs> And the BPA Performing Making course. It's been so interesting that how I've changed as an artist. Like, I really want to work... Because this guy, Dominic, um, he, he's saying, I need help with, you know, given circumstances. You know, he was approaching acting in the very Western sense. Sure. You know, in texts and questions and objectives. And I was like, yeah, yes, we shall deal with that. But... I've been loving this year where it's been quite liberating working physically yeah. and getting up in the space and working with the fundamental blocks yeah. of basic movement, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I think even for me, like, again, going back to my time with Maxine, da- um, mm. Maxine Doyle and Sarah Dowling, I never put their names together, um, <laughs> going back to being a dancer was yes. really interesting for me because I sort of, I had this wonderful two-week experience where I could feel these you know, really rusty neuron pathways in my brain trying to fire. And they were kind of getting there and getting there and then they'd lose it. And I was the only sort of non-dancer in the entire workshop. But that being said, everyone there was absolutely lovely and I never felt out of place at all. But even going back to something like that was really interesting and that was really invigorating and I think sparked an even further interest in in movement in contemporary theatre, which the BPA course really started for me. Also, did you? Because I did a, a strut dance uh, uh, workshop. Oh, of course, think, yeah. Um, 
um, Terra Incognita uh, at the state um, at the Studio Underground at the State Theatre Centre yeah. of Andrew Marsh and Humphrey Ballard. But a lot of it was dancers. Was from that workshop. Mm -hmm. Like I came away thinking, I want to work with dancers. Yeah. I want to make theatre with dancers. It's Did really you? fascinating. Yeah, it's very very interesting. The kind of conversations that I'd have with a lot of them because I was coming from a different experience was, was very interesting. I think one of my favourite moments, though, was I was working with a lovely, lovely dancer from Wapa called Kim, and we were, duo, we were a duo. And we were making this piece together based on, a, like, a set of loose instructions from Maxine and Sarah. And they came over and they watched it, and Maxine actually scrapped everything we'd made. And she said, I'm not saying it's bad, but neither of you are working to your strengths. She was like, Jess, you've trained as an actress what text have you got in your back pocket? And actually in that showing, I ended up having a monologue that I sort of performed whilst contorting yeah. in this kind of rhythm with Kim. And I also ended up singing to the entire showing, um, just that came from an improvisation. Maxine asked for someone to stand up and sing, and I did, and it sort of stuck. And it was just this kind of fascinating moment of just like, you know, stop doing what you think is good. And, and you've got two very differently trained people work on your strengths. Um, that was really fun. But yeah, I'm really fascinated in dancers and the way they can move their bodies and that kind of access they have. It's really interesting to play with. Absolutely. Now, this mm -hmm. is what I want to talk about. Blueprint. Yes. So I've got this question, but I'd love to really unpack. Blueprint was a wonderful, wonderful show that was in the first uh, season at the Blue Room Theatre. And... It's an interesting project because for me, basically for me, what I got out was Blueprint asked one of the most powerful questions that you can ask. Well, one of the biggest, in my opinion, was, you know, what is it to be human? Mm. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and and I, I got that in spades. And I think I, I love work that asks important questions. Mm. And, and then it starts a discussion. Yeah. And especially a question like that that I have not thought of. Yeah. Myself. And I'm a part of that question because what is it to be human? But, um, sorry, I, so this first question. Mm -hmm. So at the end of making and delivering Blueprint with the likes of Phoebe Sullivan, Liz Newell, mm -hmm. Sean Crofton, Phoebe Pilcher, yes. Rebecca Riggs-Bennett and Zoe Holyoke, what lesson have you walked away from that experience? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... I think what I walked away from Blueprint was is that I think work takes time is one of the biggest lessons I took from it. Mm -hmm. Whilst we spent, you know, sort of nine months making Rocket Man, which was the graduating piece, which evolved into Blueprint, I kind of don't see them as being in the same zone of the timeline we had of making Blueprint mm -hmm. because it was a totally... Whilst it was the same characters and same premise, we were extending a 23-minute show into a 60-minute show. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the devices stayed and some of the scenes stayed quite similarly, but a lot had to change because you just couldn't, it wasn't a simple matter of taking the first 23 minutes of Rocket Man and then tacking on an extra 37 minutes. It just wouldn't have worked. And so, you know, I think Phoebe, Sean and I set out with a really ambitious goal, which was we would still work on Blueprint during Fringe, which just didn't happen because all of us were involved in Fringe projects. Yeah. And so we, we didn't really actively get to start working on Blueprint until maybe March of this year. Mm. And the season was in June. And that was, 
that was quite a tumultuous time. It was a lot of work very quickly. And again, that really hard balancing act of we all have to work and make money, but at the same time we have a show to make. So yeah, work takes time was a big lesson. I also think I've probably learned to trust my gut a little bit more. There were so many beautiful movement sequences and ideas that we kind of cut because we weren't sure whether it would translate to the audience with already such a really big idea and and specifically like looking at genetic modification that's a really heavy subject to be handing over to an audience do you really want to cloud that with physicalization but a lot of the feedback we've had is that some of the strongest moments were when the movement was so well synchronized and so finessed and so I I look back on a lot of the things we threw out and I just think, oh, you know, could have been really interesting if we kept some of that. But I think also, I think going back to that self-awareness thing of what an artist needs to have, I went into Blueprint with the knowledge and I've come out of come out the other end of it with an even stronger idea that I'm going to probably look back on the work I'm making now in 10 years' time and think, you know, what was I doing? <laughs> what was I thinking? That was never a good idea. Um... And to be okay with that, to be like, I'm an artist in my mid-twenties. I don't need to have all the answers just yet. I don't need to make a career, you know, career-defining piece of theatre just yet. You know, I've got a solid maybe two decades before I need to really worry about that happening. I mean, the Blue Room Theatre is the most incredibly... uh, just supportive and welcoming environment for a young artist to play in. We felt so privileged to be a part of their first season for 2017 because the the support is unparalleled mm. and the entire team are just staggering in their mm. generosity and their ability to help you out. Uh, and the show wouldn't have been what it was without their support, really wouldn't have been. Um, so I just think kind of being able to success, like to look back on that project and go, cool, we made a show, we should be really proud of that. Was it perfect? No. But... That's okay because we're young artists and we're learning and that's kind of what that whole development season at the Blue Room is about. And one of my favourite moments, because when you watched uh, Blueprint, uh, the auditorium was sort of spaced out on all the sides. Yeah, so set it in the round. In yeah. the round, which was just fabulous. The idea we actually had going into it, because we didn't have a set designer on board, was um, we played with the idea of a boxing ring. We wanted the audience to be able to see one another at all times. And so we painted this rectangle on the floor in this deep blue colour. And that was our activation space as performers. When we were in that space, we were on stage. We were out of that space. We weren't performing. Still in character. And we never actually left the stage until we left or um, the the world or we died. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) But... Yeah, that was the that was the playing space for us. Was this square? So it was a, a, an arena, a boxing ring. That was kind of what we worked with. <laughs> and and also the, the one of the most infamous moments of the show was the bar scene. And basically, do you know what I have to? Okay, so <laughs> some context for the scene. Yes. So in Blueprint, we followed three unlikely strangers who were kind of thrown in the deep end of genetic modification, preparing them their bodies for space travel all based on real technology like CRISPR and and things that are happening now. Mm. And um, we, you know, we watched the applicants go through these certain rounds and one of the rounds was to modify the strength of of bones. And this scene actually came, it came from a much earlier scene that Phoebe and I had written and then scrapped whereby 
Jane and Alex, Alex being my character, Jane being Phoebe's, mm. got into a physical altercation because they were no longer able to sort of feel anything and so thought that res if they could sort of knock each other about, mm. maybe they would feel again. We scrapped that scene long before and then we were, we were working on the script and we were like, we feel like this hit me scene needs to come back but in a comical way. Mm. And we improv the bar scene. The, so we, in the scene... My character found a metal bar, like a baseball bat, but of complete steel, and asked Jane to hit her with it because she wanted to test the resilience of her new bones. And it became this sort of thing of each character taking a shot at beating the other one with this steel bar. But of course, we never saw the steel hit the bone. And it got the most visceral audience reactions. I, every single night we had people, they were blocking their ears, they were closing their eyes, they were like tucking their feet up on the seats. Yeah. Which was hilarious to me because it came out of a comedic improv. It wasn't meant to be that scary. Yeah. It was really fun to watch. And why I like that scene so much, because for me in a way, it is simplicity and intention. Mm. It really played on tension. And when I was sitting and watching it, I was thinking with the bar, I was thinking, are they actually going to hit each other? What do you think? Maybe if they... Because I know, because Jess has a lot of experience in stage combat. Mm. That was playing my mind. So I was thinking... Maybe they do hit each other, and the bar is made of a substance which is safe. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was, I was just, are they going to literally hit each other? But I'm glad that you didn't hit. None was, <laughs> none was hit because I thought one, it would look comical if it was say made out of foam. Yeah. <laughs> and if you hit, and it was a weird sound effect. But the beautiful moment was, was it you or Sean that? So, so basically, no one get hits each other. Spoilers. Um, but someone drops the bar. Sean dropped it. So in, the, in yeah. the last moment, it came to be that that Jane couldn't bring herself to hit Alex. And when Alex went to hit Jane, Jane flinched too much and ran out of the way. And so Alex asked Lewis to hit her. And so we built the whole thing up. I was looking the other way. Sean was positioned behind me with the bar ready to swing. And at sort of the last moment, rather than swinging at me, he just let the bar drop. And the bar was was yeah. actually a steel bar that we had found in one of the blue room spaces. It was actually like a table leg. Yeah. And it weighed a ton. It wasn't light. And so, you know, if, if anything had gone wrong on the night, because it was a moment where I actually ran at Phoebe and swung and I had to sort of catch myself every night. It was all choreographed and everything. Yeah. But if that had gone wrong, it would have actually hurt her. And... Um, yeah, I think a lot of people... I'm really glad you had that reaction because yeah. a lot of audience members weren't expecting the bar to be real. Uh, and so when it got dropped every night and made this huge, loud clanging sound, yeah. everyone sort of jumped out of their seats and that was that was really satisfying as a theatre maker. Absolutely. <laughs> now, going down the trip of memory lane, <laughs> Jess and I first acted together in a one-act play... <laughs> I forgot about this. An idea for a play for the Darrington <laughs> Theatre Plays in 2012. Was it 2012? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Five years ago. And at the time from memory, because we were doing an idea for a play, and I remember we didn't have you for rehearsals at the start because you were doing a production of the Vagina Monologues. Oh, I was too. I was that, that was around the same time. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember when I saw you, because I remember Rachel, Rachel Vonk, who directed an idea for a play, um, a mutual friend of ours. Um, and I remember she would say, oh, Jess, we've got this... Uh, Jess, she's great, 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 great. And she's doing the vagina monologues. <laughs> and I was, I have to say, I think I, was, I just turned 18 at the time. And I was very young and I was sort of breaking into 
mimic there. Oh, I don't know. I don't know that. I did some plays, but I was very nice. Vagina. Oh, that sounds a bit naughty. You know, that sort of very childish sort yeah. of thing. And I was like, I remember when you first came, I think you delivered a little bit. We were talking or something and you're delivering about, because the vagina monologues are talk about vaginas. And I remember, <laughs> oh, you started, and, and I'm very young and very innocent at the time. And you're talking in depth about this and that, and you're giving a little a teaser mm. of, of your performance and I was just you know, <laughs> um, my jaw dropped for the people listening <laughs> at home um, I was just wow you're, you're just a really really cool person <laughs> with this in mind so mm-hmm. with all that in mind how crucial of a role has community theatre played in your emerging career yeah um, so I got into community theatre my first year out of high school um, after doing basically every high school production I could get my hands on and I met some of the most wonderful people through community theatre and I, I learned a lot I I first sort of stepped into the role of being a choreographer through community theatre yeah I think I think community theatre is really wonderful I think it's a, a really great place for artists to meet from all generations and I I'm always happy to hear, like, for example, my dad, actually, after years of saying he didn't know where I got my performance side from, he actually uh, was in his first ever community theatre <laughs> production at the end of last year, uh, where he, play- he-, he played a nightclub owner and he wore the most awful wig. <laughs> it was hilarious. I think I learned a lot from my time in community theatre and I-, I would really encourage any young artist that's sort of looking to learn the ropes and and be a part of something to go and do it and I think I think beyond just wanting to be on the stage I think I also learned the importance of pulling your weight in a theatre I think you know it's really important to stay back and get to know the stage management crew and get to know your set designer and your builders and things like that and I, I, I at least I hope I can't think of a production where I didn't at least offer to help with the painting or the bump out or anything like that I can't think of a production where I I didn't want to be a part of that as well so not only do I encourage everyone to sort of like get out there and take part in it I think also learn the ropes of every other thing that you might be interested in because some of the older artists that are working community theatre have the most exquisite knowledge that's just sort of sitting there waiting to be tapped into Yeah. yeah I totally agree and it's weird in some cases uh it's no, that's going to go down a rabbit hole. So I'm going to lose my thought. But, it's all good. But yeah, there's these wonderful, and they're actually in some cases like talking about like the Darlington Theatre players, like mm. the Marley Theatre in particular. Like there are some people who actually work professionally. I was speaking of Brendan Tobin. Um, oh, work, you know, yeah, professionally for years, and and also uh, talking about uh, Dr. Douglas Sutherland Bruce. Um, there are these older sort of elders who do community theatre because obviously they've got, it's quicker, it's easier rather mm. than mounting like a full-on professional production. Yeah. Everyone has to get paid. Yeah. Um, there are these sort of masters hanging about. Yeah. I think like, because like, yeah, Brendan and uh, Brendan and his partner George, I sort yes. of call my theatre granddads, you know, like they were, I think they were on board on a number of productions that I first did getting out of school. So I got to know them really well and they held a really dear place in my heart and Douglas as well. Um, he 
was the director of the first ever musical I did out of um, high school, so got a real soft spot for him as well. And even um, I worked with an incredible director called Peter Clark. Oh, yes, yes. And he gave me the opportunity to choreograph the producers mm. after I was in the ensemble for Aida at Darlington Theatre Players. And um, he was, he's wonderful to learn under. And, you know, with all of these people, I, I've stayed in touch with them and they all congratulated me upon getting into Whopper mm. and everything I've been doing since and I think that's that's the real beauty of it, uh, of it at the end of the day is that it is it's a community and there are so many people that I really love and cherish from that side of things mm. and especially uh, Peter Clark that's another fellow yeah yeah genius yeah okay this is a weird question mm -hmm. now the reason I'm going to ask you this because I thought uh, as people may know I work in construction and and it's a very min very easy job that I do and I and and it's dangerous because it leads to my thoughts and I think a lot while I'm <laughs> um, And I asked myself at this two days ago, why do you watch theatre? Oof. I mean, beyond watching it for the sake of, I think it's a necessity as an mm. artist. I think if you're an artist who, you know, wants to be a theatre maker and doesn't watch theatre, I think you're in the wrong profession. I watch theatre to be transported. I watch theatre to to talk about the world around me. I watch theatre to, to look at someone else's perspective. Mm. Um, I think, for example, I've been lucky enough to observe some rehearsals for I Am My Own Wife, which is coming up with Black Swan State oh, Theatre wow. Company, yeah, yeah. directed by Joe Louis. And um, it's a play about a, a transvestite living in Stasi Germany and living through Nazi and then Stasi Germany. And... What breaks my heart about the play is that it is so relevant to what's currently happening in mm. Australia and internationally with, you know, um, Trump and, and uh, the current plebiscite happening in Australia for marriage equality. And it, it really breaks my heart that there are so many truths in this play that speak to the present day. But I also think that's one of the most wonderful things about theatre. Mm. I think brilliant writing transcends the time it was written in and remains forever pertinent and I think that's why someone like Shakespeare is still played to this day because he had a way of writing beyond his time you know that some other artists like David Hare and things like that Arthur Miller kind of come to mind because they write about fundamental truths of humanity I think that's why I go to the theatre to see past and present and future reflected in stories and in people and characters more than anything else. Do you find it funny? Because I see it, yeah, and I, that's probably the reason why I go. I, I go to watch to see what other people think. Yeah, that's a much more succinct way of putting <laughs> what other people think. Um, but I remember, and I'm not going to say his name, but I find it funny how, like, I remember last year. Oh, no, I won't. I won't give it any real. But I remember there's this a prestigious artist. Mm -hmm. I remember last year um, we had a lecture from this person, and it's funny because he. No, I'm trying to figure out who it is. <laughs> and, and he he went <laughs> to the class, and he goes, "I go to the theatre to be transformed." Oh, I think I remember this guy. <laughs> yeah. And but I, I love I love this particular artist and maybe one day I'll get to interview him because he's a, and he's actually Oh, I don't want to give it a Oh well um he's actually the reason why I do this podcast. Yeah, he inspired me to do this podcast. 
But I find, do you find it interesting how like we have like like people go? There are people who do go to the fair to mm. to be transformed. Yeah, uh, I, I I think. I think at the end of the day, I think the really important thing to remember as a theatre maker is you're not just making theatre for for other theatre makers to see. Mm-hmm. You know, like people who come to the theatre are not always artists. They're not always looking to, to pick your work apart and, and <laughs> steal ideas for themselves or anything like that. Not saying that anyone's done that. I'm just saying like, you know, we're all artists. We all beg, borrow and steal. I think you need to make theatre for... A whole range of people you know and I, I think that's what's really interesting about doing publicity on a lot of shows is that your first question that you ask is who's your target audience for this work yeah. and you'll never say artists because like that's just a given yeah. kind of thing but what's really interesting as a publicist is to go great how do I get the other people in to see this show how do I go beyond my target audience and I get people who maybe enjoy theatre but wouldn't necessarily come to this production to come to this production? Or how do I get non-theatre watchers to come to this show? That's really interesting. And I think if you lose sight of that as a theatre maker that you're making work for an audience, not just your peers, then you're in a real danger. Mm, Absolutely. What comes to you when I mention William Shakespeare? (laughs) Uh, I... I've loved that man since I was in high school. Um, I I adore Shakespeare. I adore his works. I, I don't think that's to put him on a pedestal and say that he's completely flawless mm. because, you know, I love rattling off this statistic. So even in As You Like It, which is Shakespeare's uh, most um, female-driven play, yes. women only speak 48.3% of the time, I think it is, and that's his highest. So, you know, obviously as a female theatre maker I take issue with that Um, but that being said I think Shakespeare has I mean I think you can flip the role the the gender of any of those roles in Shakespeare because I think at the end of the day he writes wonderful characters he doesn't write genders yes William what comes to my mind for me my favourite work is Coriolanus Mm -hmm. and again I think that goes back to what I was saying about great writing transcends the time it was written in I think the story of a soldier driven into politics I think is incredibly pertinent to today Mm. and I think the role of women in that play in particular is very interesting, the mother and the the wife. I mean, like even looking around my room now, I've got a William Shakespeare duck over there, (laughs) I've got a couple of miniature William Shakespeare books over there, like I've got my complete works in my room with my Shakespeare dictionary, (laughs) like I think he was a, a genius of his time. Mm. With and I, I think also he wrote for both royalty and the lowest of the lowest class. I, I think a lot of people can sometimes fall into a trap of thinking that Shakespeare is this incredibly eloquent uh, language, when in fact it's a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's a testament to the writing, not the dick jokes, but like <laughs> just like that he's managed to. He's managed to captivate audiences for however many generations because he writes humanity. Mm. He writes about ambition and love and lust and despair and triumph. And he had an observation for the world like no other. When taking on an administrative role for a show, Mm -hmm. what is a quality that is needed in order to be successful? Oof. For me personally or the show? 
okay. Yeah, or as in um, what would make me want to do an administrative role for a show? Oh, not for the the show. Mm. Uh, I mean, for me personally, so I can can look at this question in a couple of ways. So, like, the first thing I would say is in order for me to... Because at the end of the day, performing and creating is my bread and butter but I still really love to be around creative processes and so I do produce and do publicity and things like that. You know, all the teams I've gotten to work with this year, it's often artists that I haven't got a chance to work with before, artists that I admire, artists, you know, where I really believe in their vision and their idea and, you know, that I've been very fortunate to say that about every project I've been a part of this year is that I've, I've felt really chuffed to be on every team, which has been really wonderful. I think... For me, I write a lot of to-do lists. I kind of I need to know what I'm doing. I need to know when things are due. I don't like things being overdue. And But I also think you have to be really open in your communication. I think the second you start hiding anything or covering things up, you're not really doing your job. Yeah. There's been many an instance this year because it, it's been a quick learning curve where I've just kind of had to own my own faults and go, yep, I'm sorry, I didn't do that or I didn't do it in time, that's on me. How can I in turn fix that? Yeah. What can I do? Which is, you know, and every every team that I've been a part of, you know, no one, no one's gotten angry at me for it. I think we're all human at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. And I think going back to the clear communication, I think that's what in order for the whole administrative and creative team to be successful is it's just open communication between everyone. You have meetings regularly, you check in with one another, you ask how to-do lists are coming along. Yeah, I think so long as everyone's on the same page and there's nothing kind of being hidden from one another, I think you've got a pretty successful team, yeah, from the get-go. What's an issue mm-hmm. that you've been recently studying or looking to artistically interpret? Oof. I'm still really fascinated by genetic modification. I think Blueprint led me down a really interesting path, which I'm not kind of ready to let go of just yet. In all honesty, though, at the moment, I don't really have one. Mm. And that's why I'm taking a step back from making anything at the moment. Because I, and I was talking to some, you know, wonderful colleagues and friends of mine, like I was talking to Joe Louis, for example, who's a wonderful director and, and great friend. And I sort of said to him, I, I don't really feel I have any idea that I'm burning passionate about to make work with currently. Mm. Uh, and I kind of want to go to Europe to maybe find that or yeah. take a step back and, and not be panicked by that idea. And Joe was just like, just reflect on what you're passionate about. You know, I'm, I'm, he was like one of the reasons that I really admired working with you during Tilt was you were a very passionate feminist who was very aware of you know, politics happening around her and was very outspoken. He was like, you could maybe consider making a work along those lines. And that's not something I had as yet considered. So Mm. I think it's kind of that line of there are so many ideas I have, but none of them have completely tugged at me enough that I'm ready to jump down that rabbit hole just yet. So I'm willing to sit with them all. I'm willing to um, sit with them all for a little while longer before I find something that's really raging to be made there's this idea and i want to tell you after we've done mm-hmm. recording there's this idea for a show i have mm-hmm. and i actually met i've been meeting with a, I've, I've told this idea to a lot of people and they're very, very they're, it's, it's an interesting idea and i can already see met our colleague gala chefs off oh, gala. 
and she is interested in this idea. And uh, so for the listeners who are listening, basically I have this idea for uh, a show, an improvisational show that is inspired by the works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> but I, but that's just a dream of mine, but it's something that I'm very passionate about. And um, so, yeah, if you've got something, write it down. Mm. As our old teacher, Damien Lockwood, would say yeah. in playwriting. Yeah. I guess, like, rather than an idea I'm passionate about at the moment, I think something that, and I think this will be a career-long obsession, is I'm really passionate about movement on stage. Mm. I'm really passionate about how text and movement interacts, and I think that in a contemporary theatre room, regardless of what text you're doing, whether you're doing a classical text or a new Australian work or whatever it is you're doing, I think not only should you have a voice mentor, but you should have a movement mentor. Mm. You should have those kind of trained professionals in the room to sit with the performers and create, you know, characters or create, you know, choruses of, of mm. people working to, to, to build this world. That'll forever be my kind of passion project. But in terms of what idea that necessarily goes down, who mm. knows? Yeah. Will Perth always be home? Ah, uh, look. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I will always, I mean, Perth will always be home in the sense that I will always say I'm from Perth and, and my parents live here and my family's here. Mm. But uh, even in, in packing up my apartment currently, um, I'm actually having the thought of like, how can I get my life into one suitcase? Yeah. What is it that I really desperately want to take with me? And I want to be able to live like that. I, I'm a bit of a nomad. I've always had a travel bug. So I'm, I'm kind of happiest when I've got a suitcase and a backpack on my back. So I think, yeah, Perth will always be home and I think I'll always come back here. I don't think I'll ever leave and, and never return. Mm. But uh, I think for me personally, I've got a big calling card to the, the rest of what, out, what is out yeah. there. Currently, mm. who or what inspire your practice? Oof. I mean... I recently saw a workshop presentation through Strut Dance of Crystal Pike, her workshop with um, Kid Pivot. And that's kind of led me down this rabbit hole of looking at their works like Petroffenheit and Dark Matters and things like that. I'm really interested in high octane physical theatre. I'm really interested in seeing... I'm, interested in seeing performers sweaty on stage. Mm. I like seeing a performer work their ass off, essentially, because... I think there's a much more authentic experience to be had for an audience member. Maybe that's a bit, I don't know, masochistic or something of me, but like, I mean, even in Blueprint, you know, we had the, the workout sequence and I've never been as fit in my life as I was doing that show. But there was something really satisfying about sweating on stage. Yeah. Um, I, I'm always drawn to the works of companies like Frantica Seboli and um, Punch Drunk. I'm in the moment researching a ton of different companies across Europe mm. that I would like to go and observe and spend some time with, like Theatre du Soleil. Oh, who, I'm just trying to think if there's... A, there's not necessarily a particular practitioner that inspires me. But, oh, and this is going to sound super corny, but I mean it. All of the artists I've got to work with this year have inspired me. Yeah. You know, I there's not been a single artist that I've worked with this year that I haven't wanted to give 110% for. Whether that's as a performance, like as a performer, sorry, or as a maker or as a administrative, you know, team member, 
the you know everyone that I've worked under has inspired me and I've, I've like I've said previously made a ton of really beautiful friendships from this year I mean and you know I always go back to our mentors at Whopper as well uh, Fran and Tamara and Punchy and everyone like that like I'm always inspired by them and what they're able to give us as students I don't know if I could pinpoint it on any one I guess I've noticed a lot their, their voices have been coming back into my head mm. When I'm, so, like I was saying before, how I'm, um, I'm teaching while helping someone, you know, to prepare for an audition yeah. for the, the, the uh, acting course at Whopper. And I remember today we're sitting down, and it's wonderful because he lives in this beautiful, beautiful. He lives in, I think, Brigadoon. Oh yeah. In the hills, and he lives in this wonderful, big property, and we're out in the trees and walking and talking and whatnot. And I remember uh, Angela's voice. Hmm. I remember all her feedback. It's funny what you remember. Yeah. Because I literally thought coming back from three years, which was... And it's a very interesting course because it's so broad and you just get bang with all this information. Yeah. And now, I think yeah, you said this, yeah, a couple of minutes ago. You, you, yeah, it's sort of filtering back. Yeah, subconsciously. It subconsciously. Comes back it, mind, it, yeah. Well, even like the notebook I've got in front of me, um, that was actually my notebook from our second semester at Whopper. Uh, sorry, our second semester of third year at Whopper. And so I, I've been, you know, I've spent the year filling it up with other <coughs> notes and ideas and things like that. And I find myself constantly kind of going back to my mentor's notes and, and things I learned during my training. Yeah, I, th- I, I think in getting to work with you guys for three years, our entire class and cohort, like, learnt so much and grew together and yeah mm. I'm just thinking have you noticed because I'm an assistant I've been reading a lot about philo- philosophy mm. have you took an interest into philosophy this year I've got I've got an interest in it but in all honesty like this year has been so go 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 that I haven't had the chance to stop and just read for leisure or read mm. for anything other than the work I'm making so that's it's something it's on my to-do list for next year essentially when I take this big five month long stint in Europe and I just go right I can read books and listen to podcasts and watch rehearsal spaces I don't have to worry about making something so yeah where are you planning to go in Europe oh god I need to think about that more that's that's all good like yeah. main, mainland or uh, UK? I mean, I'll definitely like swing past the UK. Dual citizenship has its perks. Damn you. <laughs> For now, anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I think I want to spend a lot of time in like Prague and Berlin and Amsterdam as well. Yeah. I would love to spend some time at the National Theatre of Amsterdam. Um, mm. They're producing some phenomenal works currently. I just kind of want to go where the workshops are a little bit and I'm not too concerned about where it takes me. I mean, there's definitely some places that I want to tick off my bucket list, but more or less, I'm, I'm kind of interested in getting away from the big cities and, yeah. and, and finding the, the beautiful little nooks and crannies where these wonderful theatre companies reside and, and spending some time with them and the locals and immersing myself a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, theatre. Fuck, yeah. sorry, fuck, yeah, oh, that's right, you can swear in this. Yeah, fuck, shit. <laughs> Bollocks. Um, Sounds like the king's speech. <laughs> to tell you what, oh, my, my speech. No, you're good. It's been interesting, just aside on a, to talk about it. I'm preparing for an audition, mm. and for, for this uh, a production that I've been invited to audition for, for, for a Sydney, and I can send, like, a, a videotape. Right? Oh, great. And I, and, but it requires me to sing. 
Oh, fun. And I've been watching a lot of opera, video, uh, like on YouTube clips. Yeah. And the reason why opera is because I think that's, I think you should study that on a technical level. Yes. Ah, that's the thought I had today. Yeah. So I, was, so I was driving, so before I was going to my teaching session, I was driving up the hills, because he lives on a fucking hill. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a hill, a beautiful hill. And I was thinking to myself today about characters, right? And mm-hmm. you know how, because um, I remember I was watching this wonderful video with the actor, the Australian actor, uh, Philip Quast. Oh, Philip Quast, I think. He, mm-hmm. he played um, basically Javert Lemire's when they took oh, him great. to Broadway. Yeah. And, not, and he took over Roger, Roger Allen's part. And there's this beautiful video where he and Trevor Nunn dissected the last song of Javert, The oh, Suicide. Right. Yeah. But it's so, it's so wonderful. It's a real, it was a masterclass and he was talking about dot, 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 dot. And I was thinking about this video and I was thinking about character, about how, how does one act or can you act like in dancing or is there like characters? I was having this idea of characters in like an opera and singing. Do we, can we, you know, am I talking gobbledygook? No, no, I think, I think a hundred percent, like you can definitely have character and in movement in dancing, in opera, especially. I mean, you've got some of the most heightened characters in opera. Again, going back to this Crystal Pike workshop, I observed there was this wonderful moment where all the women came out and performed a piece and the entire time they all had this silent scream on their face. And that was really evocative. That was, that was pretty powerful to watch. Um, there was another sequence we saw where it was a woman who just had a fight with her lover, almost preparing for battle in a way. And all the other dancers surrounding her were helping her with her armour. Mm-hmm. And the character that kind of came out from that as well was really fascinating, I think. Yeah, you can find character in everything, but I also think that character is not 100% necessary for every artistic form. Mm. Um, And it's sometimes not always character in the sense of what an actor does, which is, you know, the given circumstances. And going back to those kind of methods, it it can be beyond that. It can be yourself in a different situation. Like, for example, all those women in that silent scream, that could very well have have been them playing themselves in that situation what their silent screen look like. Yeah, I think you can find character in everything and you can also do without character in everything as well. <laughs> ah, as everyone, I'm basically squinting my eyes and I'm confused <laughs> and we've got a little bit more time. We're almost actually, almost up, as in an hour has passed. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it really took me by surprise. Um, but I don't want to, I'm sort of thinking, I don't want to leave and I'm driving in the car and think, it's one of those moments where, fuck, I should have asked that fucking yeah, question. Sure. And now it's fucking, I've got a great fucking answer. A great. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay, this is re- rejection. Mm. Have you have any things towards, like, uh, like if you, any proposal, like, have you, do you have, like, any ideas or tips or suggestions on how to cope with rejection? I think it's a part of being an artist. You're going to be rejected. Not every idea you're going to have is incredible. You're not always going to be the right person for a job. Mm. I think you need to learn to not take it personally. You need to, again, have that self-awareness to, to be humble and maybe maybe you didn't get something because you didn't put enough work into it or maybe you, you know completely fucked up your monologue on the day or something like that and you need to be humble enough to turn around and go like okay that's on me Mm. 
But you also need to be resilient as, uh, enough in yourself to go, you know, if you can put your hand over your heart and say, I gave that all I had, then as far as I'm concerned, that's okay. I think different opportunities have the way of finding you at the right time. Mm. And there's been plenty of times where, you know, even in this year, like I, I had a rejection of a project I was really passionate about and that was okay. Like I wasn't, wasn't personally upset by it or anything like that. But as a result, you know, a lot of other windows opened instead. Mm. And so I was like, oh, cool. Like if I had been doing that, I wouldn't have been able to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So I think, you know, you can't let it get you down because if you expect to, to be a part of this industry and not get any rejection, you, you're not in for a pleasant experience because it's going to happen. Yes. It is going to happen. It is definitely going to happen. It's going to happen more times than anything gets accepted as well. It's resilience. you got to have resilience. Yeah. Got to have resilience. Yeah, that's my mantra. <laughs> resilience. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw quickly, I think it was at Facebook. I saw because, you know, oh, you know, newsfeed, and, and I saw there's this little TED Talk, I think. Mm. And I didn't watch it, but I saw, like, the little blurb on it. And it said about the guy, to get over rejection, um, and I think a reason why I'm bringing this up, apparently he said this this guy, he, he went to this burger joint or some, some mm. restaurant in America. Oh, uh, was Did it you, you had to get, re- you, you get rejected every day for a hundred yes. days or something? Like I saw, I saw like the, the, the clipping for that. I didn't watch it either, but it was like, he went to a burger joint and yeah. asked for, um, an impossible, yeah, like an impossible order or something like that. It was like mini rejections to get over big yeah. rejections. Yeah. I, I, I think yeah, I think resilience is key. I kind of, I, here's my thing. And this is probably where I get a little bit hard hearted, I guess. I am more than willing to, to help out a friend if they've been rejected about something they're really passionate about. And I'm, rejection sucks. It's never fun. But the people who wallow in it and continue to throw pity parties, I have no time for. Yeah. Uh, you're allowed to, to be upset. And, you know, buy yourself an ice cream or something to, or a beer or whatever it is that you kind of want to, you know, have as your catharsis. But I think if you allow that rejection to continue to get you down, then you're kind of never going to break out of that. Rejections come one at a time. They can come 10 at a time. You know, you can have horrible experiences and, and, and bouts of rejection you need to be able to pick yourself back up and get through that because no one else is going to do it for you at the end of the day. That's my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's been, there's been myself included, a few people where I've had to kind of go like Edna Mode, Edna Mode from The Incredibles and just like oh, pull yourself it. together. <laughs> like, yeah, myself included. I, I count myself in that, but it's a part of what we do. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Art subjective. Maybe your idea wasn't the best for that particular project or that particular application but it might be perfect for something else who knows oh yes now i gotta ask you this okay second last question mm-hmm. because time is <laughs> um believe it or not jess and i do too but not to that extent she has a particular fondness and love for marvel comics uh, yes marvel i do and dc marvel. yeah oh i love dc, DC. yeah batman is my, forever my favorite but marvel wins Supreme. I'm, I'm curious, why do you like it so much? Oh, I don't okay, know. Because I, I consider think... you, I find it peculiar, <laughs> well, fascinating how I, I do consider a very serious artist, you know, and I don't associate, but I should though, I should associate Marvel uh, 
with an intimate piece of theatre. No, I like I totally I totally get what you're saying. Like, yeah. thank you. Like, um, I don't know. I just like okay for me. Going back to what we were saying about you go to the theatre to be transformed, or for me, a great piece of theatre is transformative in its performers. What does that better than comic books, you know? Mm. Like, oh, I'm so exci- excited for the new Thor film that's coming out. I'm so yeah. excited. It's bright and it's colourful and it's dumb, but I kind of love it for being that. And it's unapologetically itself, you know? Yeah. And, but I think, I think comic books have done wonderful things for... I think they do wonderful things for kids, you know? Like, I think of my nephews and my niece and running around the backyard wanting to be Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or Captain America things that spark imagination in children yeah that's so cool it's so powerful i think they like they can tell really wonderful stories and i think they can kind of take you away a little bit which at the end of the day is what a really fun piece of art does like it's that horrible thing of like you don't want to treat it like it's highbrow theater or anything like that because it is but you know there's i don't think there's anything wrong with it being what it is you know I don't. I don't think every piece of art needs to be highbrow and ca- and high caliber and hoity-toity and all that kind of thing. I think sometimes things are just damn good fun. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. So yeah, a big Marvel DC girl. That's cool. <laughs> I love it too because the reason why I like it is the sense of mythology. And I thought today I knew what my my favorite film is: The Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. Um, I, I just love mythology, character, and story. And... <laughs> my, I've actually reflected on this recently. My yeah. favorite film has probably got to be Deadpool. <laughs> I love it. It's 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 so quotable and funny and watchable. And do I align it with any sort of anything of my artistic practice? Not at all. But it's it can make me laugh every time. Mm. Yeah. The thing what I find hard with Deadpool because I'm a, I'm a stickler for mythology. Yeah. And the Deadpool film, for me, in a way, it does and it doesn't sort of stick with the mythology of the X-Men. Yeah, which is kind of what I love about it. It's mm. it's so self-aware as a, as a film. Um, I mean, like, one of my favourite lines is, like, you know, I'm going to... Uh, he's like, I'm going to take you to see the professor. And Deadpool goes, McAvoy or Stuart? These times <laughs> are so confusing. Like, it's, it's just... I love it. It's yeah. so dumb and I love it for that. But at the same time, I'm really interested in like making works of physical theatre and working with dancers and making really interesting pieces of live theatre. And yeah. Deadpool's my favourite movie. I don't think there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. No, not at all. Well, the ink is dried. This chapter is ended. But before we go, I say but before we go, we'll <laughs> find some new transitional thingy. But before we go, Jess, mm-hmm. I've got this last question. Okay. Now, you may or may not be aware that this project, I'm definitely, definitely committed to uh, revisiting all my guests in the year 2027. Sick. Ten years. Wow. Ten years' time. Hence why I want to do 26 chapters only, because in ten years' time, that gives me at least two weeks per year Mm -hmm. to interview everyone in 2027. Sick. So... Just in the year 2027, when we meet again, mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully in a far more professional fucking manner. The reason why I say that is because I'm sick and fucking tired of mm. editing these fucking things. <laughs> it's so long, but I can't, I can't be all like that. It's, it's part of the thing, and I do learn so much about human speech, mm. like on a microscopic level. Yeah. 
I was gonna get a bit creepy there, but no, <laughs> I'm not. But near 2027, just where, wherever it might be, maybe we might be in Europe, we might be in Melbourne, mm-hmm. we might be in Perth, who knows? What would you like to plug? Oh, dreaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely dreaming. Uh, I'd like to be plugging the 2028 season of Frantic Assembly as their new artistic director. I think that's oh. what I want to be plugging. <laughs> That's the dream. Yeah, I think either you'll have to fly over to London to see yeah, me or I'll cool. fly yeah. back or something. But um, yeah, yeah I'm, I, 2027, I'll be living in London. I will have gotten my master's through Frantic Assembly in Coventry University. Uh, hopefully, oh, this might be dreaming, got my PhD under my belt. Um, but, you know, stepping into the role of artistic director of Frantic Assembly would be uh, the dream. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. that's the goal. Well, here's to 2027. Thank you so much, Jessica Russell. Thank you.